Hello, and welcome to the Bite Size Bible Study Podcast. I'm your host, Phil Shiroki, and today we are going to continue our look at the Sermon on the Mount. We will be in Matthew chapter 7. We are going to look at verses 21 through 23, where Jesus gives quite a firm warning where he says basically, depart from me, I never knew you. So this title, uh, the title of this particular passage in my Bible is, I never knew you. And it basically focuses on the um, religious people as well as um, people that falsely proclaim to know Christ, yet the fruit of their life does not bear out any evidence of that true knowledge and relationship with Jesus, because we are called to be both hearers and doers of the word. It is very important that we hear the word but that that word saturates our heart, penetrates our soul, you know, takes root in the very fabric of our being and then produces that spiritual fruit that we discussed in our last episode. Um, you know, there's plenty of people that walk around these days calling themselves Christians. There are groups and buildings that are called churches, yet if they are not truly practicing what the Lord commanded us to do throughout Scripture, and if they do not uphold the complete character of God and how He basically tells us to live and if they do not preach the entire gospel of God, well, they may hear these words one day, depart from me, you practice lawlessness or workers of iniquity or several other firm um, declarations by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And God has a structure, a framework in which we are to live our lives. He has parameters he has set that we are not to exceed or break free from. And when we do, we sow bad seeds and we reap a bad harvest in our lives and if we do not repent and turn away from those ill acts and those wicked and evil deeds and actions then one day we will reap the ill benefits of those very things and we will be judged based upon those wicked actions, thoughts, and deeds, if, again, we do not repent, turn away from those things, and accept Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. Once we do that, He fills us with His Holy Spirit, shows us how to live, guides us along the path He has for each one of us, and brings us to ultimately his will for our lives and we run the race if you will we complete this marathon called life in god's will and then once we do we are able to enjoy eternity with the lord so without any further ado let's continue our look at the sermon on the mount We are going to be again in Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 21 to 23, where, again, this is subtitled, I never knew you. Jesus giving a very stern warning here. So let's take a look at it. Alrighty, and like I said, we are going to start again in Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 21 through 23. 
where Jesus speaking says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You practice lawlessness. The notes for that section say, Jesus warns against self-deception, a mere verbal profession of lordship without obedience to the will of God. It is even possible for a self-deluded person to exercise a spectacular ministry using the authority of scriptures and the name of Jesus without walking in genuine, obedient discipleship. So that's a very sobering passage right there. Um, again, Jesus, he gives some very clear, um, you know, uh, I guess, thoughts on what happens to those who basically walk around and profess with their tongue that they believe one thing, yet they evidence of their life and what's in their heart depicts another thing. So we're going to look quickly at, again, the truth and action section at the end of Luke, where it basically just kind of sums up what Jesus says there. It says, be warned that you practice, that your practice, excuse me, be warned that what you practice demonstrates your relationship with Jesus. Never undervalue obedience. So, again, it's important that we not only confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, but that we truly yield. Again, this is where it's so imperative that we yield every area of our life to God and let him fill us with his Holy Spirit change us from the inside so that we can produce those outward good works. Again, works have nothing to do with salvation. They have nothing to do with grace. They have nothing to do with anything other than being the evidence of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God within the hearts of men and women being shown through us. Unfortunately, we are fallen, evil creatures, essentially, walking the earth before we know the Lord. And then once God comes into our life and we humble ourselves and yield to the will of God, that is where those good works, that fruit of the Holy Spirit is produced it's impossible to please the Lord, as you can see with what Jesus says right here, with just outward show or outward um, expressions and not having a true inward change. Because eventually those things that we try to do on our own, that show that people try to put on, that will all crumble because it's impossible to live a godly life the way he commands us to without a true conversion of the heart. And that only happens when we respond and we truly yield ourselves to the Lord. I mean, look, this isn't an easy process. I mean, we're talking, I mean, picture the way a horse is broken by its master to finally yield to everything the master tells him to do. That's not an easy process, and that can be a lifelong process, but that's what God wants out of us, his servants, or his bond servants. You look throughout the Bible, you look throughout the New Testament, I mean, there's no, there is no easy path to fulfilling the will of God for anyone's life. A majority of the apostles were were martyred. They were murdered by Rome, by the government, by authoritative figures. I mean, this isn't a pretty picture. And, you know, anybody that wants to dress up Christianity as this, you know, um, 
you know, walk in the clouds and this, uh, you know, idealistic lifestyle. It's not. It's a very hard, challenging way of life. And there's nothing, no one ever says it's going to be easy. But what the Lord does promise is that he never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He is always there when we call upon his name. If we are obedient to his word, those things go hand in hand, as we're going to see throughout the scriptures we're going to look at in this particular study. We're going to be in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, and we're going to see some pretty sobering examples of when God closed his ears, closed his eyes to the Israelites to the people of Judah. We're going to see those examples because God really showed me that it's very important that this episode in particular not be taken lightly and that this study and this particular passage be very, um, again, sobering. That's the one word I can use, and it's how we're called to live. You know, we're not called to be partying and walking around seeking self indulgent pleasures in this life. That's not what life's about. And, you know, that's what the world is. That's what people do that are lost in the wilderness. But we as Christians are called to a higher calling and a more, I guess, um, a more sober lifestyle overall. And I'm talking physically sober as well as spiritually sober. And, um, you know, the more I walk through this life and the older I get, the more life experience I gain, the more important I see that it is that we, you know, maintain this sobriety and this awareness a keenness, a sharpness about ourselves at all times, at all moments in every area of our life. There's really, the minute you put the sword down, the minute you put your guard down is when we're susceptible and fall to sin and fall into things we want no part of. And it's pretty much that simple. So we're going to flip up. Our first verse we're going to look at is going to be in Titus. We're going to be in chapter 1, verse 16. We're going to read this one verse that says, They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. That word abominable there means detestable. That's a detestable state to God himself. Because again, this this goes back to the lukewarmness. This goes back to the dead church. This goes back to the emergent church, that group that wants to be accepted by the world and accept the world and its wicked ways and try to put it under the banner of Christianity. Again, they may profess to know God, but in their works, they deny him and they are abominable. They are disobedient and disqualified for every good work. So that verse there is basically, quick note says, Paul agrees with James that works give evidence of faith. So again, good character produces good works. Good works do not produce good character. I just feel compelled to keep stressing that point. Because, again, as one who came out of legalism and as one who has a good understanding and good life experience with kind of trying to, you know, uh, walk the fence, if you will, between God's will and my own will for my life, I can clearly see now how important it is to be all in, if you will, on the will of God for my life. So, Let's flip up now. We're going to go to 1 John. We're going to be in chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 3 to 11, where it says, Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word 
Truly, the love of God is perfected in him. By this, we know that we are in him, that is God. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he, Jesus, walked. Brethren, I write to, excuse me, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So let's look at the notes here again for 1 John, again, chapter 2, verses 3 through 11, where it says, Obedience to the commandments of God tests one's knowledge of him. Genuine love for God and a true relationship with him must be evidenced by loyalty. Another test of fellowship with God is love for the brethren, an old commandment that they had known since their first acquaintance with Christ. The commandment to also Excuse me. The commandment to love is also new because Jesus gave it a new standard and a new motive. See John chapter 13, verse 34. John affirms the fact that the true light, which the gospel reveals, dispels the darkness of moral ignorance and satanic bondage. Love is characteristic of light and hate is characteristic of darkness. Those two are mortal enemies. Therefore, a person reveals the genuineness of his relationship with God by his relationship with others. So I love uh, that entire passage and, and those notes make a lot of sense. They definitely show that you know, again, how we treat others is a very clear evidence as to our status with God. And if we love others, then we are in the light. If we hate others, we are in darkness. There's no in between. You cannot be both. You cannot have, again, this is why it's so important to forgive everyone, to have peace in all relationships. Because although we may think we have reasons to be unforgiving towards certain people, God has plenty of reasons to be unforgiving towards us. Let God be the one who decides who to forgive and not to forgive. We are simply called to obey and to forgive. So we're going to flip up now to the truth and action section in 1 John. We are going to look at the truth and action sections, verses 2 and 3, that really break this down and give us a little better insight and understanding as to what John is speaking of here. Again, starting with the truth section of section 2 in 1 John, where it says, Steps to Holiness. Living in the world without partaking of the spirit of the world is the Christian's call. When the spirit of God reveals to us the true spiritual poverty in which the world exists, it becomes easier to overcome the lures seeking to attract us back into that condition. When we understand the fullness of our inheritance in Christ, the world's offer seems poor indeed. When we truly set our affection on God, the lusts of the flesh are reduced as a problem. Unlike Lot's wife, who regretted the loss of the world, 
let us look ahead to the glorious hope of love, life, and light where God rules eternally. Amen. That's the truth section in that section of 1 John and now the action. Again, for that verse, the verses from chapter 2, verses 3 to 11, where it says, Recognize that hate for others means that you are in darkness. Do not set your affections on or live sacrificially on behalf of anything that, one, appeals to your fleshly appetites, two, appeals to your covetousness or greed, or three, fosters pride or arrogance. Do not allow anything to lessen even slightly your worship, service, or devotion to God. Amen. And then looking at the section three here for First John says, A step to faithful obedience. Faith realizes that there is no alternative to obedience for anyone who knows Christ and has been born by his spirit. And then the action section here says, recognize that only those who obey Jesus really know him. Understand that obedience is the first evidence of love for God. Know and believe that only those who are learning to live like Jesus know and love him. So again, that Truth and Actions section there, just breaking it down very clearly, very concisely, and saying, you know, um, basically, we will be known by the fruit of our life. And the fruit of our life is that in which the Holy Spirit is indwelling in us and changes our character from darkness into light, from hatred into love. All right, so we are going to flip back. We're going to be in 2 Timothy. We're going to be in chapter 3, and we are going to look at verses 1 through 9. Again, as we continue our look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. So, again, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, where it says, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people, turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Jannies and Jambrils resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. Looking at the notes here for that section, Paul exhorts Timothy to continue in the gospel in the face of a great increase of evil. In the last days, the time from the first appearing of Christ until his second coming, people will be characterized <clears throat> excuse me, by all kinds of self-centered and unnatural perversions. Some will maintain an outward pretense, speaking the vocabulary of Christianity, but refusing the reality that Christian faith expresses. The power they deny is the heart of Christianity, the fact of a risen Redeemer, the truth of the inspired Word, and the indwelling and overflowing of the Holy Spirit, working within believers and transforming their lives. 
The false teachers are compared to Jannies and Jambres, Egyptian magicians who oppose Moses because of their base and perverted minds. So right there, you can see where um, basically, again, you're, there's a laundry list there of people that um, they basically they have a knowledge of God, yet they deny the true power of God. And, you know, God can't stand that. He he would rather, again, this all comes to the lukewarmness. And this kind of reminds me of the, uh, again, one of the, the most prevalent, quote unquote, religions in America right now and globally, really, as we get to this one world type of religion is just this generalized thing called spirituality. It's where people take a bunch of different pieces of religious philosophies, you know, texts, um, beliefs, um, and they kind of just ball it up into one feel good kind of, you know, um, again, it has a bit of a, a sound of goodness. It sounds like it could be a type of Christianity, yet they deny the true power that is the Redeemer, the blood of Christ, the fact that there is one God and that's it. There's one way to heaven. They deny essentially the, the real essence, the crux, the truth of God. And again, it's better if you never knew him than if you knew him and deny him and the true power of him. Because I believe, again, <laughs> eternity is a, a long time. And when you have that mental weight on you, the fact that you had the knowledge, yet you denied the power and the true essence of who God was, that is a special type of torture in eternity for those that deny who God truly is. And again, these sins that are listed, this laundry list of characteristics, these, you know, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You know, this obviously, I mean, you could say lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. If you look at today's generation, you look at the age of the social media interaction. The irony of social media is it's really just broken society to a point of, I believe, ill repair at this point because people are so addicted to social media, these um, these uh, pseudo interactions, if you will, pseudo relationships, these quote unquote followers, quote unquote friends, um, you know, the the terminology couldn't be further from the reality of what the um, human relationships are breaking down to. You know, it's really sad. A lot of people would rather be alone and isolated and by themselves at this point than to actually be out and be social. Um, the generation coming up now, I read studies here and there where it's basically documented that they would rather sit home alone and have their own personal entertainment. And it all comes down to, and the same thing when you see like society now, how everybody embraces these, um, you know, animals, for example, and, you know, their fur babies, if you will. Um, you know, everybody embraces that for a good reason. A majority of it's one-sided. You know, you know, a, a dog or a cat loves you because you supply its needs and it just feels subjected to, you know, loyalty to you because that's all they know, frankly. Um, social media, phones, you know, the Internet, that's all stuff you get to choose and dictate exactly how it is, um, you know, interacted with, if you will. But it's a real challenge to be in a relationship or have friendships and it's, you know, um, again, I think it's very evidenced by the way people are today. The um, hatred, again, um, just go out on the roads, just drive, <laughs> drive around on the streets. You'll see aggression, anger, you know, um, it's unbelievable the way people are so quick to just flip the bird these days and, uh, 
you know, just um, really let their, <laughs> really not try to hide their feelings yet. Um, you know, it's just, it's a very dark, dark world that is quickly becoming overtaken by, I believe, a lot of darkness. And it's being evidenced throughout humanity, pretty much, you know, wherever you look, it's kind of scary. But um, let's look now, we're going to flip to Romans. We are going to be in actually chapter one, and we are going to look at verses 28 to 32 as we continue this look at just, again, people claiming to know God, yet not knowing him at all, or maybe having a knowledge or some, you know, some, uh, a, a bit of understanding, yet not truly being fully committed and yielded to God. And we're just looking at, again, just the repercussions and the consequences of trying to Look, you can fool some people sometimes, other people other times, but you can't fool everybody all the time. And you sure can't fool God. And I'll admit, as somebody who's known the Lord a majority of my life, growing up at certain times, I tried to play both sides of the fence, if you will. You know, I'd be one way to one one group of people, one way to another group of people, but it would all catch up with me in the end. And it did, and it will, and it always will, because life's not meant to be lived in that type of a fraudulent state. You're, you are who you are at the end of the day. And I, thankfully, at 41, I embrace who I am. I'm a Christian. I am a bond servant. I am a I am saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. I am a um, child of God, and I wear that proudly um, on my sleeve, if you will, as you can tell with this podcast. Also, throughout my life, I have no issue talking about the Lord because you know why? At this point, people want to just they want to proclaim all their ridiculous political points. I don't care if you're right wing or left wing. I, I couldn't care less about stupid politics at this point. I don't care about them. Save your, you know, save your talking points. Again, I it just makes, I loathe the very thought of those discussions because they're fruitless and baseless and they're uh, nothing but opinion. And I, I frankly am so just tired of hearing it. I, again, it all goes hand in hand with social media. The way people treat each other these days is absolutely unbelievable. The way people will go and just attack one another over things that, frankly, at the end of the day, they could probably not change or control a majority of what they're arguing about because there are other people that are in charge of those things that you cannot even touch. But, you know, it's just it's crazy. It's just wild. Um, but. All right, we're going to look again. Romans, we're going to be in chapter one. We're going to look at verses 28 to 32, where it says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, Murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. So let's look at the notes here, and then I'll comment on that. Basically, verses 29 to 31 are a description of a society totally rebelling against God. And I mean, if you just look at the description there, it is all around us. <laughs> look, people can say that's how it's always been. That's how, you know, nothing new. No, it's worse now. I mean, even in the course of my life, it is much worse now. Even just the past two decades, since I was 20 years old till now I'm 41, I see a huge difference 
in the world. And it's not just my perspective that's changed. It's not just my own experience that's, that's you know, given me different opinions and thoughts. It's right there in front of us. I, when I turn the news, quote unquote, on right now, when I look at um, just, the, again, a lot of this goes hand in hand with the rise of technology, the rise of social media, the breakdown of family, the redefinition of family, the breakdown of society, the society, of this, the fabric of society is breaking down before our very eyes. Right now, we're about to have a trial of a cop who killed a black man, uh, George Floyd, God rest his soul. I mean, what a, I, I, when I saw that video, it was brutal. It was absolutely disgusting. But I fear what is about to happen in this country. It is now March 8th, 2021. And I am saying right now, this day, <laughs> I fear what the repercussions could be because all eyes are on this trial already. It, it's today's day one of the jury selection. It's already been delayed. And I just, you know, uh, we saw a, a, some, a, a taste of the anarchy of the violence last summer. And I just fear what we could see in the upcoming months and who knows what period of time and duration this could really go on for, but it could be a very long summer and a long warm season for this country, because I really think it could be a, just a, a tough time, really, honestly. Um, but, all right, we're going to look at the note for verse 32 here says, it's an interesting note, too. I'll read it, and then well, I'll read the verse, and we'll read the note, because it gives a, a good perspective on what this is saying. And the description of those people, basically godless people, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. The note says, the deeply irrational nature of sin is seen in the fact that even hardened sinners still know in their hearts that their actions are deserving of death. Nevertheless, they go on sinning and even drag others down with them when they approve of those who do the same things. So I say this all the time, and I firmly believe this, that although you know, um, people act a certain way, our consciousness, which I believe is that, you know, the 10 commandments, if you will, written on our spiritual hearts, the thing, you know, we have an inherent knowledge of good and evil. And yes, that can be dulled, that can be um, manipulated through just basically making yourself callous to the good and to that good consciousness to where you become just an evil creature. But there's definitely a knowledge to which you people know when they're doing wrong. People have to go against their very flesh to do certain sinful things. And eventually they are uh, misery loves company. They drag others down with them once they get to a certain state. Knowing that they're wrong, yet they still encourage others to engage with them in those, uh, you know, sinful practices because they just don't have the ability to turn away, repent, and truly, um, you know, not do those things. And they bring judgment upon not only themselves, but also upon those who they are dragging down with them. All right, so we are going to flip back now. We are going to be in Matthew, and we are going to look at chapter 25, verses 1 through 13, where Jesus gives a very good parable here. It's called the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. And again, we're looking at people, we're looking at basically in Matthew, again, chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, where Jesus gives a stern warning against those who basically want to, you know, have an outward appearance, if you will, and even sometimes talk the talk, if you will, of being a Christian or knowing the Lord, but inwardly they're just wicked, evil, and they have not truly given themselves to the Lord the way he commands us and 
desires for us to do. Look, he came to this earth. He stepped down from heaven in order to give us a life more abundant. The least we can do is yield and give to him and, um, you know, uh, sacrifice, become the living sacrifice that we are commanded to become so that he can truly, you know, change us and um, be that God of our lives in every area of our lives. This idea, you know, this sometimes, you know, Western Christianity can get very confused with, you know, their individualism versus really understanding the overarching um, purpose of God, of his will, of salvation, you know, um, as much as God is for us, you know, as much as he wants to provide and he does and loves us and cares for us, there's also, you know, <laughs> those words are very relative and those, those meanings can, it can have different, um, implications, if you will. And the idea of, you know, again, Western success and Western definitions of exactly what could be uh, the true intent and purpose of one's life can sometimes be a little uh, misunderstood and misconstrued. Again, we have to understand that um, God is, he's working for his will and his purposes. So, uh, you know, sometimes I'll even be in church and we'll sing a couple songs with some lyrics where I'm like, is that doesn't really sound like, uh, I don't know, it doesn't sound like exactly what I think God meant when he said X, Y, or Z. But, you know, no one's perfect. We're all trying to do our best here. But uh, again, we have to be very keen on um, just keeping everything in perspective here and understanding that God is the one who... Um, he, he's the one who's truly in control of all and his purpose is and his will is the ultimate divine um, outcome that he is working towards. So, again, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 25 verses 1 through 13. This is, again, called the parable of the wise and full virgins, excuse me, foolish virgins. Um, this is Jesus speaking, says, then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready in with him to the wedding, excuse me, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So, you know, again, a parable just relating to, it seems like these, you know, the wise virgins had fresh oil in their lamps, meaning, well, let's look at the notes here and then we'll we'll go from there. Jesus teaches the necessity of preparedness for his return. He compares the second coming of a joyful wedding procession in which the unprepared cannot participate. Excuse me. He compares the second coming to a joyful wedding procession in which the unprepared cannot participate. The wisdom of the five virgins consists in their taking a supply of oil in vessels, in addition to the oil already in their lamps. Thereby, they are prepared for the unexpected delay of the bridegroom. 
there is an implicit association of the bridegroom with Christ as well as the bridegroom's delay. That is, the delay of parousia, that is, arrival and presence of Jesus. The lack of benevolence on the part of the five wise virgins is part of the parable proper and need not be pressed into allegorical significance. So, and then finishing up here with the point, uh, the last couple of verses here where it says, the message is too late. The point of the parable is found here. In view of the Perusia's delay, be prepared and watch since you know neither the day nor the hour. So again, the wise virgins, they, although they all slumbered, they all slept, they were wise enough to take extra oil in their lamp, meaning they were constantly full, refreshed of the Holy Spirit. They were, they had foreknowledge. They basically had the foresight to see that they had to not think that the master or the bridegroom was never going to come or that they had enough and they just stopped, but they, they kept, again, they kept a reserve and let's look at the note here for uh, this Kingdom Dynamics section. Again, just a section that kind of breaks down um, the lesson in the parable or the teachings of the scriptures where it says, only the Father knows when Christ will return. This is a critical verse to remember whenever one considers the second coming. Throughout history, believers have mistakenly tried to determine when the Lord will return. And in ignorance of the history of this folly, has led some in every decade to presume to pinpoint the time of Jesus' coming. But here, as well as in chapter 24, 36, and Mark chapter 13, verse 32, Jesus tells us directly that no one but the Father knows the time of his return. People have interpreted the expression hour or delay to mean that when that we may discover the month or year, but this is incorrect. We cannot be sure that it will be in any particular year, decade, or even in our lifetime. However, Jesus began his sentence with the command, watch. The challenge the Lord gives us is to be constantly and eagerly awaiting for his return. Therefore, our duty is twofold, to prepare ourselves for his coming so that the Lord will receive a bride without spot or wrinkle and to do business until he returns, so that the kingdom of God is preserved and extended on the earth. Let us be about the Father's business, live in expectation of the Master's return, and be done with all idle speculation or superstitious date-setting regarding the time of his coming." Excuse me. So again, basically, the valuable lesson to learn there is the fact that if you are, you know, constantly expecting Jesus to return, that state of expectation and that, um, you know, that constant watch, if you will, produces a heart of obedience and produces the um, urgency and the understanding in which we are called to live. That is that we will not be caught. We will not be, um, you know, uh, easily susceptible to sin or slumber and say that, oh, well, you know, God hasn't, Jesus hasn't come back yet. So I can do X, Y, or Z. And then after that, I'll just repent and I'll be good. No, not really. I mean, that totally shifts your entire purpose in life if you're, again, looking for Jesus to return at any time, that means you're praying, you're um, in the word of God, and you're obeying what God teaches. You're speaking about God. You are fulfilling the great commission to spread the gospel to as many people as you can because it's absolutely vital that um, while we're here, we do preach and teach the word of God. Because, um, you know, everyone, everyone that has an ear to hear needs to hear from someone. So just as I heard from someone, just as 
you heard from someone. Others are waiting to hear the good news, believe it or not, regardless of the time period in history, regardless of what's going on on a, you know, within the world, if you will, um, we are called to preach the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the um, unfiltered and whole, complete character of who God is. So it's absolutely vital that we never slumber we never assume that the, the the delay, if you will, and keep in mind, there is no delay, quote unquote. We cannot look at things and be so judgmental when it comes to the world and say, oh, well, you know, God, how can he be waiting this long? He must be, you know, um, th- th- he must be delaying basically the same way the virgins did. But no, I mean, he's not. God is on a divine timeline. And if nothing else, the reason why he doesn't just come rushing back right away, he is waiting for as many people to come to him to fulfill that great commission as possible. Because once his judgment begins, it doesn't end. So look, we can all look around at the world and see the wickedness. We can see the Antichrist. We can see Satan, the darkness covering the world. We can see the grip getting tighter on the church, on true Christianity. But at the end of the day, we have to realize also that God protects his people and loves him, loves them, just like he did with Lot during the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, just like he did with Noah during the judgment and the great flood of the earth. He will protect his people regardless of what's going on around us. So we need to have faith in that. We need to be bold in that, and we need to truly, truly understand the times that we live in and understand that, again, I mean, you look at, you know, First Peter, you look at John, you look at those books, you look at the, the authors of, you look at James, you know, you just look at the authors of the New Testament. At that time, they expected Jesus to come back any minute because of the wickedness they saw around them. And that was over 2,000 years ago. But believe me, we're 2,000 years closer to his return. And as you can see, the times these days are definitely indicative of, you know, Christ could return at any second and any moment. And it's going to be quick, swift. And um, that's why it's imperative for us to live out you know, godly lives, be, be those living sacrifices we're called to be, because you just never know when Christ is going to return. You don't want to be caught up in some foolishness, you know, that may, you know, who knows what spiritual state you'll be in or how God views you at the time. But, you know, um, of what I read in the Bible, you know, we are called again, as Jesus says in this text in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, We are called to be fully all in on the Lord. And if not, you know, then you will hear, I never knew you, you know, and we're going to look at that at the end of this verse or the end of this study. But 